if you're learning a new skill, you know, it'd be important to have a lot of REM sleep because you're almost like replaying those skills over and over. It's involved in emotional processing as well. So, you know, if you're continually cutting off your sleep, you're likely losing out on some of that REM sleep and you may be more emotional. There may be more mental health issues. Hey, hey, welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Tan, and I'm so grateful you're with me today. I have a favor to ask. It would be such an honor if you took 30 seconds to rate this podcast five stars. And if you had another 30 seconds to give us a small review about how this podcast has changed the way you think, the way you do things, how it's changed your life. All of this really helps the podcast to keep growing and to reach more people. And I would be so grateful if you could help me do that. On today's episode, I chat with sleep scientist, Dr. Amy Bender. Amy has 17 years in clinical sleep research using data-driven insights to create strategic recommendations for better sleep and patient care. She's a medical communications leader in the sleep field as evidenced by 150 presentations, over 100 media interviews and podcasts, 23 peer-reviewed publications and over 16,000 followers on social media. She is the founder and principal sleep strategist at Sleep In To Win, where she empowers executives, athletes, and everyday people to sleep better by creating personalized sleep strategies. She's helped develop the Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire, which is the only sleep screening tool validated in athletes to identify sleep problems. She is a Hall of Fame college basketball player, mountaineer, and Ironman Coeur d'Alene finisher. And if you're French and listening and I butchered that, I am incredibly sorry, but I hope it was okay. In this episode, we talk all things sleep and it was so fascinating to me and I could have literally spoken for, well, I could have listened to her speak for hours and continue to ask so many questions, but what we do cover is sleep and the sleep stages what happens during those stages and what bodily and biological processes are happening during those stages. So it really gives you a good idea of if you're not recovering as well, if you're feeling a a lot less clarity, this will give you a better understanding of why. We also talk about banking sleep and how to utilize sleep as a strategy in order to perform at weekend race day, a race event, your um, competition day. So it was really great to get these strategic principles in order for you to be able to apply to your routine so that you can show up and perform at your absolute best. We also cover things like caffeine and alcohol and the part that they play in your performance, how they can be detrimental, but also how they can be really good and how, again, to strategically implement that into your daily routine so you can perform at your best and still get 
really great restorative sleep. So without further ado, let's dive straight in with this episode with Dr. Amy Bender. Dr. Amy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. It's a pleasure. I'm so pumped to be able to talk about sleep. It's a topic that is getting so much exposure now, which is so important, obviously, for obvious reasons. It's so important for our health, our well-being, um, our performance. And so to start with, I'm really curious to know for you and in your research, at what point, was there a pivotal point where you just went, holy moly, this is so important and, and so many people need to know about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of started at the beginning where I was introduced into the sleep field and my aunt was um, manager of a sleep lab and she invited me over to kind of see what she did. And she was able to hook up the patient with the electrodes covering, you know, brainwave activity and breathing activity and muscle activity and um, how those signals translated into um, the different physiological parameters of sleep and how to score them based on different stages. That was probably the the starting point for me where it was just so interesting to be able to take all those physiological signals that we do during sleep and then translate it into some useful information and to be able to diagnose sleep disorders was was a pretty pivotal point for me. That would be. Do you remember? Was there anything that stands out to you that she go? She told you, "Look, this means that," and you're like, "Whoa." <laughs> well, I think just seeing. I guess I would have to say seeing the deepest stage of sleep on the screen, where the brain waves are just very high amplitude, very large brain waves. You know, stage N three sleep is what we call it now. But um, that was just fascinating to see how, like, how much the brain changes across all the different stages of sleep. And um, going, like, seeing REM sleep, where we see rapid eye movements and muscle tone that's very low, like, seeing that on the screen was was pretty cool. Holy heck, I want to see this. (laughs) That's so (laughs) fascinating. Well, since you've mentioned it, can we talk about the different stages of sleep? What are they and why are they so important? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we we go into non-REM sleep and REM sleep in about 90 minutes. So we have cycles of non-REM to REM sleep lasting about 90 to 110 minutes across the night. And we start in a very light stage, stage one, where we're Um, you know, transitioning from wake into sleep and our breathing starts to slow down, you know, our eyes start to to relax. Um, And so we start with that stage one, which takes up about 5% of our sleep time across the night and then go into a slightly deeper stage of sleep, stage two, which takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night. And um, again, that's where like memory processing starts to occur with sleep spindles. Um, 
And, you know, again, we start to relax a bit more, muscles relax, and then get into um, stage three sleep, uh, the deepest stage of sleep at about, you know, 25 minutes into the sleep cycle, 30 minutes into the sleep cycle. Um, and that's where if you were to be woken up, you would feel groggy. So if you're taking a bit of a longer nap um, and you're woken up during stage three, you know, that's that's where I'm seeing these huge brain waves on the screen. Um, and that's where the brain is, is clearing out the toxins as well. Um, also involved in memory. Um, so when we're sleeping, our, our, our neurons shrink to allow cerebral spinal fluid to flow through and get rid of those toxins. And so that's typically occurring during the deepest stage of sleep. Um, and then we'll kind of fluctuate back into stage two and then go into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, where you're dreaming, you know, you wake up, you remember a dream and our muscles are being um, paralyzed, you know, our external muscles um, are being paralyzed so that we're not acting out our dreams. Um, and so a lot of that deep sleep stage N3 is occurring at the first half of the night in the first three sleep cycles. And then we'll see a little bit of REM at the beginning, you know, at that first 90 minute mark or so, but then we'll gradually get um, bigger and bigger as the night goes on. Those kind of dreaming periods or REM periods get bigger as the night goes on. So um, we tend to get, a, you know, we tend to, if we have a short night's sleep, we'll tend to get most of our deep sleep um, because that's happening in the first half of the night. But um, we'll be definitely reducing our REM sleep because that's occurring in the last half of the night. And that's involved in, you know, learning memory. Um, and, you know, all, all of the stages are important, I think, is kind of the take home message here. But um, different stages have different um, processes kind of going on. Yeah. Well, I, so are you saying within every sort of 90 minute cycle we experience all of that all of those stages yes yes wow yes. Mm -hmm. and so yeah and then towards the end we may not have much deep sleep at all happening so I guess yeah towards the end of the night we kind of we we make up for all of our deep sleep in the first half of the night and then towards the end it's more of you know, maybe awakening with a little bit of stage one going into stage two and then into REM. So it's mainly like stage two and REM sleep occurring in the last half of the night. Okay. And so that, and the lighter stages happening towards the end of all of this, which is why it makes it easier or should make it easier to wake up in the morning. Yes. Yes. Like, so depending on exactly if you're um, you know, if you're waking up in a lighter stage of sleep, like let's say you're waking up in stage two or even stage one, um, you're not going to feel as groggy as if you're waking up during deep sleep, especially, and even a little bit in REM sleep. Um, you know, overall, it, there, there is something called sleep inertia regardless of the stage of sleep, where it takes our brain at least 30 minutes to fully wake up. 
Um, and I know you're probably experiencing that now with this <laughs> early interview. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm past that now. <laughs> <laughs> what I do with early interviews is like get up a few hours earlier so that I can get past all of that. <laughs> okay, good, good, good tip. Um, I'd love to know. Okay, so just to clarify this in my brain, <laughs> my waking up brain, REM sleep, is is that, so is that the, that's the dreaming state? Mm-hmm. And deep sleep well, is something different? Yeah, let me let me go into a little bit more into the processes going on within um, deep sleep. So deep sleep, stage three sleep, um, it used to be considered like stage three and four. And now it's just considered stage three. We no longer really have a stage four. Um, that's where growth hormone is being released. Tissues are being repaired. So for athletes in particular, um, that's a really important stage because, you know, we're, we're building tissues, we're, um, we're having growth hormone released um, to help in that stage and repair and recover from the demands of the sport, you know. Um, so that's really important for athletes. And then REM sleep is, is where we're, now we can dream in any stage, um, but primarily those dreams where it's like a movie that we remember in the morning. Um, that's those, you know, detailed dreams that are occurring is in REM sleep. Um, and so that's where like, if you're learning a new skill, you know, it'd be important to have a lot of REM sleep because you're almost like replaying those skills over and over. Um, if you're, like it's involved in emotional processing as well. So, you know, if you're continually cutting off your sleep, you're likely losing out on some of that REM sleep and you may be more emotional. There may be more mental health issues. Um, So yeah, that's, those are kind of the functions more in more detail of deep sleep and then REM sleep. Awesome. And I do want to get more into how that affects athletes and the different types of athletes. But before we do, um, chronotypes, I wanted to touch on Mm, this mm -hmm. um, because I think it's really good to know for everyone, um, but also to know that it's not the be all and end all, if that's possible. So what is a chronotype? Mm Yeah, chronotype is kind of your biological preference for being an early bird or a night owl or somewhere in between. So um, now about 70% of us are kind of in between that early bird, night owl. You know, you may um, sometimes feel good waking up early or you may find it easy to go to bed late. Um, And so those are more of our intermediate types, which takes up about 70% of the population. And then the morning types, the early morning types, like let's say getting up before 6 a.m., you know, extreme morning types, um, going to bed by 9 p.m., that takes up about 15% of the population. So we have more early birds um, preferring going to bed early, waking up early. And then we have our night owls, which takes up another about 15% of the population where they just prefer to go to bed later, wake up later. Um, But it's driven by biology. So uh, for those night owls, it's likely that their melatonin is being released later. 
And if we're thinking about adolescence, for example, um, chronotype changes as we age. So when we're more of a early childhood, you know, we're in more of that early bird state. But then as we get to adolescence, um, we see a peak in night owlness where, you know, at uh, age 19, 18, 19, 20, that's where we see kind of that more of a preference for being a night owl. Um, and then as we age, you know, 50s, 60s, then we revert back towards more of that early bird type. Um, and of course, there's a lot of variability, like there can be, you know, early bird adolescents, for example, um, and night owl elderly people, for example. Um, so there can be a lot of variability, but I think um, it's important to try and sleep in line with your biology if you have that flexibility. Um, but where we see problems primarily occurring is for those night owls. They have it a lot more challenging because of the demands of, of work, you know, has to start at a certain time, um, school, for example. Um, so the night owls do have a bit of a harder time. They're more at risk for mental health issues. They're more at risk for academic issues, you know, if they have early morning classes. So um, it's important to try and sleep in line with our biology if you can. But if you can't, light helps regulate our circadian rhythm. And so being really strict about light exposure. So if you're a, a night owl, getting lots of light in the morning can help shift your circadian rhythm to an earlier time. Um, and then blocking light at night can also help like prepare your mind and body like, okay, it's time to go to bed. Um, and melatonin can start getting released earlier. So there's little tips and tricks if if you are kind of opposite to what your schedule requires. Um, controlling light can really help in that area. Yeah. Is there any other way to, like, is it possible to retrain ourselves to be able to feel comfortable waking up early? I know you just mentioned natural light, um, but can we train ourselves to feel really good waking up early? I think I think you can if you have a more controlled environment. Now, the minute you, you know, like if you set an alarm, you set an alarm at the same time, you've set a bedtime alarm to help kind of unwind, you have a good pre-sleep routine, you're wearing maybe blue light blocking glasses to block that blue light that's telling our brain to be alert at night, you know, to help promote melatonin. Um, I think you can, you just have to be a bit stricter with like um, trying to control that light exposure. Um, but, you know, by, and so biologically, yes, your, your circadian rhythms can advance depending on light exposure. Uh, your melatonin can be released earlier. So I think there is, I think it, there is hope for those night owls out there who do want to have a bit of an early, earlier schedule. Um, but the minute you, you know, stop doing that, your body is going to want to revert back to the way it was. Yeah. And I find that so interesting. You said like when that, t those teen years, you see a lot of people go into the 
the night owl stage. Was that right? Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is is that, do you think, something that I know you said it's biological, but does our environment and our behaviours and our habits play a part into the reasoning behind that? Because, you know, we we get a bit older and we want to go out a bit more and we want to stay a bit later with friends and there's then a bit of alcohol and this, I, I mean, could could this play a part in this at all or is it just that flip of the? I Yeah, I think it could, it could play a part. Um, the study I'm thinking about is, look, it ha- it's in like over 25,000 individuals and they're looking at chronotype across all of the years. So early childhood, adolescence, um, you know, older adults, et cetera. Um, and and ha- doing a verified, validated questionnaire on chronotype and then just assessing where they're at. Um, I think it, like, we become more sensitive to light. Um, during certain ages. So that could have something to do with it. Um, As you know, when we're older, we aren't as sensitive to light just because, um, you know, of like, eye issues going on in particular. So it's more challenging to control your chronotype, you know, when you're older. Um, So yeah, I think I think environment can like exacerbate that natural tendency. Um, but primarily I would say it, it is driven a lot by biology. And I think working with a lot of athletes and, um, different practitioners, me personally, um, it is a myth that, teens are lazy and they want to sleep in. Like it's a matter of discipline, you know? And I hear um, some coaches say, well, they just need to go to bed earlier. Um, They're just not disciplined enough. And in my eyes, it's like, no, their biology is not wanting to release melatonin until later. And if you're waking them up at 6 a.m., that's like the equivalent of waking an adult up at, you know, 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. because their biology is that much different at that age. Um, so, yeah, it is it is interesting, but I always like to go back to, you know, I guess biology driving that. Yeah, super interesting. Well, speaking of athletes, I'd love to talk more about how athletes can um, improve their sleep quality for performance. And before you mentioned, um, you know, the athletes uh, at the different stages, it was, gosh, I hope I remember this correctly. Stage three is when our memory process and our muscle um, Mm -hmm. memory starts to consolidate. Was that right? Yeah, stage three. Stage three is where growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired, but also um, cerebrospinal fluid is, you know, flushing out those toxins. Um, and of course, that occurs throughout the night, but primarily in that stage. And then REM sleep um, is where, like, if we're learning a new skill, for example, procedural memory is is coming out during REM sleep. So learning a new skill, 
Um, so I'm trying to think of a good example. I'm coaching my daughter's uh, nine-year-old basketball team. And um, we did a new drill yesterday where uh, we did this rainbow passing drill. And it was it was funny because, you know, they they it took them a while to figure it out. And um, and I'm just thinking to myself, hmm, I wonder if they're going to actually like replay that in their sleep and learn learn that skill so that next time we do the drill, they'll be a little bit better. <laughs> well, that will be really interesting. <laughs> See how that goes. <laughs> um, yes. Well, in saying that, is there, you know, for athletes, but for everyone in general, is there an amount of sleep? I You hear seven to eight hours being thrown around as the, you know, the, the a minimum or ideal amount of sleep one should be getting. Is, is there an ideal amount of time and is that across the board? Like for athletes in particular who are, are doing, you know, that strenuous work they're training potentially at 5 a.m in the morning and then go to work for a full day and then potentially are looking after a family afterwards like I mean there's a lot going on in their life so is that seven hours generally the the rule of thumb for for getting all the adequate rest you need yes I would say I would say seven is the minimum um we think so for an adult, it's between seven and nine hours is kind of that recommended amount. Now, six hours may be appropriate, 10 hours may be appropriate, for example, but seven to nine is kind of that recommended. Most of us fall within that seven to nine. Um, so I think aiming to definitely hit that minimum of seven hours each night is important um, but when we look at sleep extension studies, we see, so for example, there was this, uh, basketball study or college basketball study where they studied everyone, their team sleep. They're getting about 6.7 hours. So they were just below that seven hour threshold. And they then said, okay, we want to extend your sleep across. We're going to really focus on sleep. We want you guys to be in bed for, you know, around 10 hours. And they ended up getting about 8.5 hours of sleep during this four to six week period. And they found improvements in performance of, you know, like three point percentage improved by 9%, free throw percentage improved by 9%, um, reaction time improved by, I don't remember the exact number, but it was at least, you know, 6%. Um, sprint times improved, their sprint times across the court improved by, by a bunch as well. And just by focusing on getting more sleep. So, um, you can, you can aim for that minimum if you want, but what would happen if you got more, like, could you see a lot of gains in your, in your fitness? Could you see, you know, new PRs coming your way? Um, it's an interesting concept. So I think in general, yeah, let's aim at least for that minimum, but what would happen if we could get more? And it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't even have to be like an hour more per night. It could be, okay, I'm going to go to bed 20 minutes earlier. I'm going to sleep in 15 minutes later. I'm going to add in a 20 minute nap, you know, twice a week. I'm going to add in a 90 minute nap once a week on the weekends. Um, 
I'm going to sleep in a little bit more, you know, so there's, there's ways that it all can add up to then get more sleep across the entire week. That's brilliant because, I mean, you answered my question. I don't even have to ask it, but I was going to ask, yeah, can we include naps within that, I guess, that accumulated time? It doesn't all have to be at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 no. I mean, especially in um, like when I'm working with swimmers who have early morning training yeah. times. Um, now, talking about naps, um, even if you're getting a sufficient amount of nighttime sleep, if you add in a short nap, it's going to boost your mood. It's going to boost your alertness. It's going to boost your performance. It's going to reduce muscle soreness. You know, so I advocate for naps, even if you are getting a sufficient amount of nighttime sleep. But uh, for those that are training really early morning, you know, we want to try and make up for some of that lost sleep at night by adding in a nap and more of a longer, you know, 90 minute nap, for example, um, to try and make up for some of that lost nighttime sleep. And 90 minutes is the maximum? Um, <laughs> I guess it depends. I mean, I've worked with, with college age swimmers where, you know, their melatonin is being released later. They're not sleepy early. And so, you know, it could go as far as two, two hours, two and a half hours, potentially, depending on the amount that they're losing at night. Um, but the key with napping is, um, is we don't want to make it too close to bedtime. So ideally, the timing of that is, you know, noon and 4pm. Um, the earlier, like in these swimmers, let's say they do their training, they're able to come home, um, and nap, you know, a two hour nap is not as big of a deal because they're not, uh, they still have an opportunity to build up sleep pressure across the day. Um, so yeah, the, the duration depends also on the timing. So, um, ideally, you know, 20 minute nap, you're not getting into the deepest stage of sleep, waking up, feeling groggy. Other than that, a 90-minute nap, I would recommend because then you're getting all of the stages of sleep. Um, but if you're losing a lot of nighttime sleep, then we may go beyond that 90 minutes mm. to kind of make up for some of that lost sleep. Aside from losing sleep, is there any other time that you would recommend trying to get more sleep? And what I'm thinking of is those who are potentially dealing with a sickness. Um, we could talk about our athletes who, um, you know, have are, are dealing with a, a peak week of their training. So their load is just really high and really exhausting. Is there any time or any, um, any situation where someone you'd recommend saying you need more sleep? So forget about seven, try and get 10, try and get 12, when that really can help their um, either body recover and restore and um, get better? I think so. Um, uh, case in point with myself. So I did an Ironman in 2009. And this is when I kind of was starting out in the sleep field and starting to like really be interested in sleep for athletics. And um, after that event, I slept for 10 hours, probably for 10 days in a row. Um, so I think definitely 
recovering from the event is going to be helpful. Um, but yeah, potentially prioritizing it during high training loads. We think, you know, that, that we need to recover from the demand, the mental and the physical demands of the sport. And that's why we think athletes need more. Um, and so, yeah, prioritizing during at that time. Um, but also as you're, as you are leading into an important competition, let's bank sleep. Uh, so for example, you're doing an, an endurance race, um, overnight, you know, 30 hours of running, um, you're going to be sleep deprived during that event. Well, what we find is if, if you can bank sleep leading into a sleep deprivation period, you're going to perform better. So there was a study with uh, just, it wasn't an athlete specifically, but they um, had one group where they said, okay, get your normal amount of sleep. And then they looked at their performance during um, total sleep deprivation. And they had another group where they said, okay, leading into the sleep deprivation, we want you to get, you know, an hour more of sleep. And they looked at their performance during sleep deprivation and they performed much better when they were banking sleep or getting more sleep leading into this sleep deprivation period. So I think that's another strategy where we should prioritize getting more is leading into uh, playoffs, leading into Ironman, leading into these endurance events um, where we know we may not get the best night's sleep prior to that competition. We may have performance anxiety, but if we can kind of get good sleep leading into that point, we know it's not going to impact uh, too much. So how much leading up to it? Are we talking like the full week trying to get an hour extra each night leading up to a race or like three days before? How, how long are we talking? So there have been a number of studies looking at banking sleep. So getting more sleep, extending sleep, or, you know, we call it different things. Um, and the period, like we've seen benefits uh, from different periods of time. So the Stanford basketball study was, you know, four to six weeks of 1.8 hours more of sleep per night. Um, but there was a tennis study where they said, uh, okay, we're going to get a week, a week of 1.7 hours more of sleep per night. Um, and their tennis accuracy, their serving accuracy improved by 6%. Um, there was another study with three weeks of 45 minutes of extra sleep, and they found reaction time was improved by 4%. Cortisol was reduced by 19% in rugby athletes. And then there was this one that was really interesting where it was just three days of one and a half hours of extra sleep per night. And they found a 3% faster time trial performance in endurance cyclists. So um, take your pick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Proof is there. Yeah, take your pick. Like it could just be a week of prioritizing. It could be three days. You know, I think, I think any little extra that you can get, I think, will help you in the end. Preaching to the choir here. I'm I'm very much a sleep enthusiast. <laughs> so I'd love to know then with those extreme athletes and those who are doing like those multi-day events where they're 
they can be really long days and be finishing. Um, I've heard even like right into the evening, seven, eight o'clock at night, whether they're um, running for the full day or um, or cycling, and then having to wind down, relax, try and get some sleep, but then be up at like four the next morning. Mm-hmm. So banking sleep sounds like a really smart strategy for those type of athletes. Is there anything else that they could do during that event period? Yeah, I think um, this is one of the most common issues I see, um, especially at the professional level, um, because I work with some teams um, in the NBA and the NHL, um, some athletes in the NFL, and their number one complaint is, you know, how do I shut my brain off after after a game, for example? And I think this also applies to endurance athletes who have just been wired, you know, going as hard as they can, and now they need to unwind and, you know, be able to get up the next day and fall asleep relatively quickly. So I think um, some important things you can implement for that type of situation. Um, and I was just working with someone recently where we added in, um, we added in a bedtime alarm. So um, obviously if you're like in an, in an endurance event, you know, not a huge deal, but um, this person in particular, they're having issues shutting their mind off after a game. So we're like, okay, what time do you get home um, from the game? What time's a realistic time that we can start this pre-sleep routine? Um, so we set a bedtime alarm. We then um, implemented like, let's heat the body up. So taking a warm bath or shower, taking a sauna, like having a sauna um, temporarily increases our body temperature, but then plummets, making it good for falling asleep. Um, so heating the body up was something that we implemented into their routine. Um, and then the next part was a reading or writing activity. And actually, um, if you check out my, my, in, I have an Instagram post on this on how, what to, to put into a pre-sleep routine. So we can maybe put a link to that in the, in the show notes. But, um, the next part was a reading or writing activity. So reading a paper book, um, helps kind of activate the parasympathetic nervous system as long as it's not too crazy or murder mystery or stuff like that. Um, but also could be a writing activity, like writing a cra- a gratitude journal. Um, even writing a to-do list helps offload those thoughts off of your mind. You put them on paper and you're not worried about it as much before you fall asleep. So um, doing a reading or writing activity and then having breathing techniques. So anything where you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in will help activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And then um, one little bonus one, actually before you do the breathing could be like just telling yourself positive affirmations. Um, I'm gonna, my brain and body will get the sleep that I need. Um, my sleep is going to be restorative, you know, like giving yourself positive, positive talk before falling asleep, I think can make a difference in sleep quality, moving to the breathing technique and then finishing it off with a cognitive technique, like 
uh, the cognitive shuffle where you think of a word like bedtime and you imagine all the objects you can with the first letter B, so ball, baby, bus, banana, moving on to the next letter E, eagle, egg, and you're just thinking of all these objects that you can. Um, or picking a color like red and imagining all the objects you can that are that color. So strawberry, apple, raspberry, um, red chair, red cup, you know. Um, and what that does is it helps simulate what your brain does when you fall asleep, but it also just preoccupies your mind a little bit so that you're not so worried about falling asleep potentially. Um, so I think having a good pre-sleep routine um, is, is something that can really help people in that situation where they're, you know, they're wired, they're tired, but wired. Yeah. It's so huge. So important. And one that I think not many of us think about or have a pre-sleep routine. And just by hearing you say that, um, I can imagine how much it would help me. The, the one thing I do do is a hot shower. And I do find those nights I do get to sleep quicker now that I think about it. So <laughs> I may make that part of my nightly routine. Mm -hmm. But knowing mm -hmm. that you can go into a race um, or an event or a multi-day event and have these things that you can do would at least take some pressure and anxiety away from the trying to fall asleep and get up the next day early enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just having those tools in your back pocket and um, it doesn't have to be as elaborate um, every day. Those are just some like a solid pre-sleep routine. You could you could do some of those exercises um, and could be an hour or so. But I think having and, and I do this for myself, um, where even if I'm going to bed late, I'll like take a warm shower and I'll like do things to unwind because I just feel like my sleep quality will be that much better um, versus like just trying to like go to bed as fast as possible, hit the pillow, you know, and and expect to, to feel great. Um, I, I do that even when I go to bed late, I'll I'll reduce it a lot, but I'll at least pick, you know, two, three things that I can do um, every day. And that sets your brain up, like understanding that routine. Oh, this is wind down time. Oh, we're getting prepared yeah. for bed. Yes. I mean, we do that with our toddlers, our babies. Yeah. Like we have this routine, but somehow we kind of fail to do that for ourselves. We don't have a, you know, a, a, and there can be bad things that you have in your pre-sleep routine too. Um, so having these good activities that help prepare your mind and body for sleep, I think can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I still want to stay on this topic of the athlete and um, potentially the multi-day event, but, you know, in general as well, and talk about things like caffeine um, because we know that caffeine can be used to help performance. I, I would love to know in general what the effects of caffeine is on sleep and then how 
can we help athletes um, to understand when they could be taking it so it doesn't detrimentally impact their sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in general, you know, coffee or caffeine can help, um, sorry, can um, take us longer to fall asleep is one of the impacts, um, depending on how close you're consuming it to bedtime. Um, So that's definitely an impact. Um, It can increase, like it can decrease the amount of deep sleep that we're getting, um, you know, those large brainwave activity going on. So it can, it can decrease uh, deep sleep. It can increase awakenings during the night. So those are kind of the general impacts, you know, a stimulant on, on sleep. Um, I think we, we just need to be more strategic as an athlete on how we're consuming it, you know, exactly as you mentioned, um, because there are like, there was a study in, in rugby players where um, they were consuming the caffeine at, it was like at halftime, like halfway through the game. um, And the caffeine peaked after the game, you know? So what is the point (laughs) in consuming caffeine during the middle of the game if it's then peaking, you know, at the end of the game? Um, So that's like some, some things we can take into consideration and in that study in particular, I think 25% of them ended up pulling all-nighters as well. So you think the caffeine is helping your performance during the game, but how is it impacting your recovery after the game? And it'll take you two, three days to be able to recover from an all-nighter, for example. Um, so that's, I think, just being more mindful about drinking it strategically. And then another thing for people to be aware of is um, the slow metabolizer versus the fast metabolizer. So um, there was a study in cyclists where it was by um, Dr. Nancy Guest and they found, they looked at genotypes. So how you metabolize caffeine and they found that the slow metabolizers of caffeine actually reduced their performance during the time trial by something like 13%. So you assume caffeine is helping you no matter what, but it may depend on how you metabolize it. And, you know, they did a a caffeine consumption and then the time trial, um, I don't recall the exact details, but it, it was within an hour later. And so it could be that these slow metabolizers maybe they would do better for consuming caffeine well before the time trial, you know, to give it time to metabolize, um, et cetera. So um, bottom line, let's try and kind of drink it strategically and um, understand how caffeine may impact us as an individual. Yeah, that's so interesting. So does that, is there a standard as to when you drink caffeine I mean, how quickly, I know you said there's slow metabolizers, but like, is there an estimate of time where the caffeine is at its peak in say the fast metabolizers versus the slow metabolizers? So we can figure out the strategy. I know that would be, I don't know if there's any, any work (laughs) on that in particular, but that is, that is interesting. Um, uh, I guess that study would be a start to, to try and figure that out at least for 
because there was the fast metabolizers did improve their performance with caffeine consumption. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't um, was exactly that, remember the details, but. Was that within an hour of consumption? Mm-hmm. It was, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so interesting. Um, yeah, it could be, it could be beneficial, uh, you know, if you're a fast metabolizer by consuming that caffeine. But again, um, we have to weigh kind of the pros and cons on, on recovery. So again, you know, like it for those one-off events for sure go ahead and consume caffeine because you have the ability to recover after that event um but in nba athletes for example you know like they have a game almost every other day they have back-to-back games um so you know you may want to look at being a lot more strategic with consuming it for every game um you know, before the game, which starts at 7 p.m. So I'd love to know then, like with the slow metabolizers, is, uh, how do we know we're a slow metabolizer of of caffeine? Are are there symptoms? Like, well, can you call them symptoms? Yeah, I think, I think we some of us might have a general idea of, um, you know, like if we're highly sensitive to caffeine. Um, so that might be a clue like, okay, if I have a coffee at 2 PM and it's impacting my ability to fall asleep, um, you know, maybe I am more of that slow metabolizer, for example. Um, but even in, there was a study in, um, teenagers where they gave them, uh, an energy drink with dinner and um that subjectively they're like oh this didn't impact my my sleep at all and um in in those teenagers and they might have been sleep deprived you know coming into the study but the caffeine didn't impact their ability to fall asleep so whether or not they were on caffeine or not they fell asleep in a similar amount of time but when they looked at brainwave activity, they found that their deep sleep was reduced by 25% with that energy drink at dinner time. Um, so, just a caution out to our list, you know, your listeners, that you may not think it's impacting you, but in reality, it very well could be. This is so sorry. Um, To get back to your question, um, you can take um, genomic testing. So um, there's like saliva samples that you can do to figure out what type of metabolizer you are. So there's like nutri genomic um, companies that offer like ways to figure out how you metabolize caffeine. So those people, those teenagers who had the Red Bull, Um, Firstly, I wonder how much caffeine they're consuming in general, because that brings my question to, can you become, and I say in air quotes, immune to caffeine? Because I've had conversations with people who are drinking like six cups a day and they'll have one even just before bed and they'll be like, nah, I can sleep fine. I can get to sleep, no problem. So is is this actually a thing where our body can sort of have this, not immunity to it, but get so used to it that 
they're still able to sleep and but unknowingly they're still being affected yeah i think um definitely there's tolerance um tolerance here where um in a lot of these caffeine studies what they'll do is they'll you know they'll make sure that they're not recruiting any you know six cup a day people you know it has to be like a moderate amount or you're excluded from the study number one and then number two they get you to go off caffeine prior to the study a week before and so i think the when we say you know it impacts your ability to fall asleep it impacts deep sleep all of that i think the studies are a bit skewed more to be like alert alert caffeine is really bad for you um but in reality it may not be as bad if you have developed this tolerance um but the fact of the matter is you know it does t it's a four to six hour half-life to get out of your system um, and maybe if you built up a tolerance that that can be a bit quicker, but still, if you're consuming caffeine right before bedtime, there's there's no doubt in my mind that it is making your sleep quality worse, even if you think it's not really impacting you. Um, there is an example in my one of my my PhD study where um, I, it was an interesting area. I was in more of a clinical clinical role where we were looking at smokers trying to quit and um, they, you know, a lot of them consume caffeine with nicotine and we didn't necessarily restrict the amount of caffeine, but we had one participant in particular where um, he consumed coffee right before, right before bedtime. And on another day he didn't. And um, it, it was very telling looking at that brainwave activity where on the day he didn't, his sleep quality was much better than on the day that he did. So, um, yeah, I think I think we got to be more aware of um, even if you don't think it's impacting you as much, that likely there's probably a negative impact depending on the timing. And generally, we say there is a really good meta-analysis looking at all the different caffeine studies, and they found that around 1 p.m., should be that cutoff where you're not consuming after that point. Um, and so, you know, I always say like, don't go, don't drink beyond noon, um, depending on the situation. So, um, yeah, lot to think about there. There's so much to think about. I love this. Um, my husband used to be a sleep tech and he, oh, cool. yeah, he would tell me stories about, um, how, people would obviously get wired up and um, and this was obviously to check if they had sleep apnea and um, they would wake up in the morning and feel really groggy and awful um, and they would complain that they just had the worst sleep of their life. <laughs> and then he would say, actually, you just had the best sleep of your life because you actually went into deep sleep this many times and whatever. So. Is it possible? I find that really interesting. Firstly, if that someone can get the best sleep and still feel awful, I guess it depends on when they woke up. But um, is it possible for the type of person who does let's let's just say they drink a lot of caffeine, whether it is a coffee or whether it is an energy drink, 
they think they sleep fine and then they go off it and then potentially have an, and I air quotes, <laughs> awful night's sleep, but it could actually be the best sleep of their life because their body is actually starting a, a restorative process. Could that be possible? I think it could. I mean, based on just the example with your your husband, um, I think it is hard for us to gauge how well we're sleeping. Um, and so there's so many people out there who have sleep disorders that don't even realize it. Like, you know, um, and maybe they're not impacted to the degree of someone else, so they may not recognize it. But um, yeah, it is, it is pretty challenging to, to really understand, um, the impact, um, unless you want to go off of it for a while and it can take, you know, up to two weeks for it to kind of get out of your system and then see how you're sleeping, um, and see if you notice a difference, which, which I think could be, could be helpful, um, yeah, but it is it is challenging to understand, you know, is this making a difference or not? Am I a good raider in my sleep or not? Um, and that's why, you know, that's why we have uh, sleep studies where we're looking at brainwave activity. Um, that's why we have wearables to some degree, although, you know, more challenging to look at like the stages and the deep sleep because they're not as accurate in that area. But um, it is nice to have more of those objective measures. Yeah, we love data. <laughs> I think if we can look at something tangible, it, it does it does help with you know setting goals or at least understanding that oh well, if I had a not so great night's sleep via how I feel, but also what the data is saying on the app or on a, on our watch or ring whatever it is that you're wearing at least then that can give you an opportunity to you know do something different the next night mm -hmm. yes yes and I I'm at first I I wasn't really a fan of wearables just because I didn't think they were that accurate but I've since changed my mind because I think what's measured can be managed as you were saying um, you know, we need some of that data to then, okay, how can I change this? How can I optimize this? Um, and look at more long-term trends across time. So I think, I think wearables can be useful in that, yeah. in that sense. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to know what alcohol or how alcohol affects our sleep and the athlete. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you know, it helps us fall asleep quicker for sure. But as it's being metabolized, it can be disruptive to our sleep. Um, you know, our heart rate starts high as it's being metabolized. You know, we're at a higher heart rate across the night. Um, it can be more, it can be more disruptive to REM sleep in particular. Um, just as it's being metabolized, we're more likely to be in REM sleep depending on the timing of the drink. Um, so yeah, alcohol can be pretty detrimental to our sleep, despite the benefit of being able to fall asleep quicker. Um, and so limiting, limiting that, um, making the timing not too close to bedtime, 
you know, avoiding the nightcap, but maybe wine with dinner, you know, not as big of a problem. And then just trying to, um, especially with like some of the athletes, you know, um, they may have a game, go out, have a drink. Um, but the next day they have a day off. So can you avoid alcohol on that day off and really prioritize that recovery? So, um, trying to really strategize the timing of the drinks and, um, things like, having a non-alcoholic drink follow, you know, having a drink followed by a non-alcoholic drink followed by a drink of water, you know, like trying to limit the number of drinks too can, can then, you know, not make the impact on sleep quality as poor. Yeah. Does alcohol have like a a half-life like the caffeine does? Do we need to be mindful of that? Or not so much. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, I I don't recall what that exact number is, but we want to try and avoid um, drinks like within three hours of bedtime. Um, but it, it depends on the person too, and it's it's there's likely that metabolism like different people metabolize it differently. Obviously, um, I don't think it's as well understood. Um, as caffeine. But yeah, I think, um, you know, being mindful of how it impacts you as an individual. So if I consume it at dinner, am I seeing an impact on my heart rate, my heart rate variability? Am I noticing I'm waking up more during the night um, versus, you know, um, having it earlier, having it later, like just thinking about as an individual, how it's impacting you, Mm. I think can be useful. So useful. And that's where those wearables come into it because that can tell you your heart rate variability um, when you consume Mm -hmm. alcohol Mm -hmm. or caffeine. So, so important. Yeah. And actually, um, uh, Aura Ring, I noticed, uh, had this kind of caffeine experiment where it was really, it was really interesting because you could, um, it would ask you, okay, over this last week and each night I would ask you, or each morning it would ask you, okay, did you consume caffeine within six hours of bedtime? Um, and so you would put yes or no. And then what it's going to do is then compare your nights with and without, uh, six hours of bedtime and then show you like how your data changes. So I think that's a really cool feature. Um, that is that so cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's happening already. Yes. And I, and I, I think wearables are good at measuring data, but, um, the connection with behavior change is lacking, you know, so why is this information useful for me? How is it going to change my, um, behavior? Um, but something like this little, they called it like a caffeine experiment, I think, is is kind of a cool idea um and i know aura just started this and i know whoop does a really good job of kind of connecting different lifestyle factors and um what the data is showing too so i think it's up and coming i think that's just going to keep keep coming and we'll be able to do experiments like that yeah that is so cool Dr. Amy, I could listen to you talk for hours because this is so <laughs> fascinating and I've got a bazillion more questions, but we'll we'll um, round it out here. Um, 
for anyone who wants to follow you, your work, I know your Instagram is full of really cool information. So how can they find you and, and find out more? Yeah, um, you can follow me. Yeah, I'm on I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok a bit. Um, I'm on well Twitter X or whatever. Um, <laughs> I try and post as much as I can, um, but I do have a busy life. So uh, yeah, you can follow me at Sleep for Sport on those. Uh, I also have a website, sleepintowin.com, um, and you can catch me there as well. Awesome. We'll have all of that in the show notes. I've got one more question for you, and then I would love to hand it over to you to ask a question of this listener. So my question to you, what are some tips to improve the quality of our sleep? Mm-hmm. I think getting light exposure um, is a big one. Uh, we talked about that a little bit, um, but getting outside for at least 30 minutes um, which where the light is much brighter. Um, so getting that exposure, prioritizing that exposure in the morning, but also potentially in the afternoon, there's been some new, new research in that area. Um, so getting good light exposure, limiting our light exposure at night as well. So dimming our lights, um, you know, potentially using those blue light filters on our phone or even like blue light blocking glasses, potentially if you're late working at night, um, so prioritizing, strategizing light. Um, we talked about caffeine. We talked about alcohol, having a good pre-sleep routine. We touched on that. Um, napping. So incorporating a nap if you can. Um, I think that'll help improve performance as well. Um, and I'm trying to think um, if there's anything else we might have missed. Um, being wary of wearables. So understanding that uh, the sleep stages, I'm not going to put a lot of, um, you know, a lot of value into that data coming out. So being aware of that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we covered a lot. Um, we did. Kind of my top tips there. Amazing. And what question do you have of this listener today? I think, um, what is one thing you can do tonight to start to improve the quality of your sleep. So is it, can I, just one thing, can I add in a pre-sleep routine? You know, can I add in a walk in the morning to get more light exposure? Can I add in sleep mode on my phone to try and, um, you know, put it, go into grayscale to prevent me from scrolling and scrolling and scrolling? So. Um, that's my question to the list, listeners out there is what is one thing you can do today to help optimize your sleep for the future? Amazing. I love it. Dr. Amy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been awesome. Like I said, it's something that I could just pick your brain for hours. It's such important information and I just love learning it. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. And maybe we can do a part two sometime. <laughs> well, you said it. So now <laughs> it's on my list. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. How good was that? 
I just find this research so fascinating and there's so much more to be done and it just, it blows my mind and I just love it. If you are also loving sleep research, then please head over to Dr. Amy's website and her social media because she shares so much on that and it's just nice to be able to scroll through your feed and see either a reminder of what you should be doing around your sleep and sleep hygiene, sleep prep and um, be able to apply that in your day as well as the latest research that's coming out as well. So she's constantly posting these tips, this the research and the studies around sleep and it's just such a super resourceful space and uh, I highly recommend it. So I'll make sure that's all in the show notes for you to uh, get onto and We'll also put in the website where she has additional resources and studies as well. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know someone, if you know an athlete who gets a bit anxious or their sleep tends to get a bit interrupted during times of competition, during weeks of competition or um, during a heavy load period of training, then send this over to them because there are so many great strategies in this that could really help them. As always, I appreciate you for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a listen into this week's episode. Have the best day, stay awesome and We'll catch you next time.